0: I I want to begin with the thoughts of an author I really enjoy. Uh, He writes about a book that came out uh, several years ago that gives you instructions on what to do in the direst circumstances than you can imagine. I mean, the book is called The Complete Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Picked it up myself. Want to make sure I read it. And and just as an example, the following set of instructions are actually in this book, advice from an expert. It's called How to Wrestle Free from an Alligator. And just walks you through it step by steps. For example, step one, if you are on land, first get on the alligator's back, put a downward pressure on its neck that will force its head and jaws down, which is a good thing. Second, if its jaws are closed on something that you want to remove, like your leg, (laughs) tap or punch it on the snout. And on the instructions go, kind of concluding with, once free from the alligator, seek medical attention immediately, (laughs) even for small cuts or bruises, because alligators have a huge number of pathogens in their mouths. Which is a rather gentle way of saying, if the massive hemorrhaging and lost limbs don't kill you, the bacteria probably will. There you go. I mean, this worst-case scenario handbook, it's it sold millions of copies, and it covers kind of every situation that you can imagine. How to fend off a shark, how to survive if your parachute doesn't open. It's a good one. How to jump from a building into a dumpster. And, and understand, it's serious advice. It's actual advice from experts in their fields. But even the publisher doesn't really expect people to buy this book for the guidance it contains. Because it's sold in the humor sections of bookstores, as it is in chapters. It's kind of a joke in that way. Because few people could ever imagine or picture these things actually happening to them. These just aren't scenarios that we really have to worry about in our lives. But when reading through the book though, you'll eventually come to two entries listed near the end. How to survive a tsunami, how to survive a forest fire. And when you read those, it doesn't seem all that funny anymore. I mean, when I hear that, my mind goes immediately to the tsunami accounts that we've heard over the past years. And then in recent months, just the horrific fires in Australia. And in reading these pages, you can't help but think about how many lives could have been saved, how many families wouldn't have been decimated if people had just known and followed the guidance that's given in this book. I mean, it's meant to be funny, and it is. Until the situation described, actually exists, actually happens. And then it's not just a distant, odd rarity. Then it's not funny. Then it's not just hypothetical. It truly can be life or death. And there's another subject that for many people seems so far off, so unlikely, that it's more often treated comically than being an actual concern. And that subject is what I'd like us to focus on together today. It's what the Bible calls, in Hebrew, Sheol, or in the Greek, Gehenna. Our English word for it is hell. Now, if this is your first time visiting with us, you might be thinking, why did I pick this weekend? I came on hell weekend, seriously. But actually, I think this is a great weekend to be here. Because when we ask people to tell us their questions about faith or Christianity or scripture, I mean, what do you wrestle with? What do you struggle with? Questions about hell, about God's wrath, about the afterlife come up over and over and over again. I mean, this might be one of the biggest stumbling blocks to faith that there is today. I mean, have you ever had questions about hell? I mean, for example, why would a loving, gracious God send anyone to hell? Doesn't that just make God vengeful or cruel, if not downright evil? I mean, this isn't just a philosophical or theological question either. This is a deeply personal one. I mean, the fact is, most people today, regardless of their religious affiliation or their faith background, believe in some kind of life after death. Yet so many people are so unclear as to what it will be like or how that life to come is accessed. So really my request of us today is that we think carefully about this together. So we're going to think carefully about it. And I want you to know, it's okay if you don't agree with the message. It's okay if at the end you don't like the message. Hope you come back next weekend. Maybe you'll like next week's better in that way. That, that is fine. But I just want to really think carefully about this as we're continuing in this teaching series called Asking for a Friend. So in our time today, I just want to try to answer the question, okay, so what does the Bible really say about hell? And so we're going to take some time walking through that together. And I want to look at four declarations that I think Scripture makes about hell that helps answer some of our questions. Four declarations. And the first declaration I think we find in Scripture is this hell is a reality. I mean, according to the Bible, whatever hell is, it's real. It is very, very real. Now, one of the reasons that hell can sound so odd or unrealistic is because that word brings to mind a lot of ideas and images that actually aren't biblical I mean, depictions of hell as kind of a set of elaborate dungeons or torture chambers or you have the devil with a long tail and pitchfork. I mean, for example, here's a couple of images. These are from the artist Gustave Doré. They're actually based on Dante's 14th century work, The Inferno, which is part one of his great divine comedy. So you look at these images and, and realize these images of hell have more to do with medieval art and literature than they do with God's word. So to understand what the Bible says about hell, we really have kind of have to go back and dig through the actual language, the actual words that are in Scripture that are translated into that word or concept of hell. And so in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel spoke of a place that they called Sheol. Sheol. It it was a real place. Sheol was a term used to describe the place where the dead are congregated after death. So in the book of Genesis, for example, Genesis 37, when Jacob believes that his son Joseph has been killed, that's why he cries out this in Genesis 37. And as you hear it, remember, this is a word of God, friends. In verse 35, Jacob says, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning." Okay, but... But then as we continue on, the idea of hell, as we understand it in the Christian faith, is actually kind of seldom referred to in the Old Testament. The Old Testament really doesn't go into much detail about the life to come. So we ask, well, what about the New Testament writings? Well, now we see the reality of hell described far more clearly in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there are really two Greek words that we commonly translate as hell. One of the words you already know, it's Hades which kind of like Sheol, that means kind of going down into the grave, going down to the earth. And then the second is a Greek word, Gehenna. You want to say that word with me? Gehenna. Okay, now understand that that most of the time when we encounter our English word hell in New Testament, it's been translated from that Greek word Gehenna. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, we read Jesus' words saying this. This is Matthew 5, 29. And Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna, into hell. And understand This kind of language Jesus is using here, it wasn't just reserved for people who are viewed as being horribly immoral or wicked or decadent. He also used this language to describe the falsely religious, the kind of outwardly pious people as well. In fact, Jesus challenged the Pharisees, and and they were some religious leaders that are around during Jesus' day. He challenged them with the same language. A bit later in Matthew, he said this. This is Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verse 33. And Jesus said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna to hell?" And so we ask the question, okay, so what is Jesus talking about? What is this place, Gehenna? What does it mean? Well, understand this. In Jesus' day, Gehenna, it didn't refer to a lake of fire or some elaborate set of dungeons. It referred to an actual place just outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because you, you can go there today. in kind of off the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem, there's a valley known as the Hinnom Valley. I brought a picture of it so you could just see what it looks like today. And there are no homes there even today. Because you, you see, the Hinnom Valley, it has a really dark history. In fact, centuries before Jesus, one of Israel's worst kings, it was a man named Ahaz, he began to worship the Canaanite god who is named Molech. And worshiping Molech called for unspeakable acts, including child sacrifice. And we can actually read about this in the book of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah writes, and here he is speaking in God's voice. Listen to Jeremiah's words. This is Jeremiah 731. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's the Hinnom Valley to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Which is just a powerful phrase. When God sees these atrocities, these evil acts, he says it's stuff he can't even fathom. It would never even enter his mind. So the Hinnom Valley, that place, was where those child sacrifices were made. So it was viewed as being a cursed place. It was cut off from God. So no one wanted to go there. No one would, without question, want to live there. And it became over time kind of just a rotten, great trash heap. Where the Israelites, they would go there to dump their garbage, throw the corpses of criminals and dead animals. And so kind of understandably, it was known for just its incredible stench and it's constant smoldering fires. Sound familiar? And so people began to call that valley Gehenna or Gehenna. So when Jesus was talking about hell, he wasn't talking about a dungeon or a torture chamber. It was much worse. He was talking about a place that was cut off from God. He was talking about how how dark a human soul can become. He was talking about just the grossness and evil of human sin. You see, part of the reason we know hell is real is because sin and its consequences are so real. And I know this. I know most people today, we don't like that word sin. We don't want to think of ourselves as sinners. And, I'm, and this, I'm not trying to say we're, we're all rotten people, I'm, but I'm here to tell you, friends, that sin is one of our biggest problems. It's my biggest problem. It's your kid's biggest problem. It's your spouse's biggest problem. And I can see those elbows. <laughs> and so we might not like the word sin, but understand, sin is your and my biggest problem. Which is why Jesus talks so much about Gehenna, about hell. Interesting that the person who talks more about hell than anyone else in all of scripture, wanna guess who it was? It was Jesus. And, and, and not because God was cruel or vindictive, but because God sees the mess we've made of our world and he wants us to know that sin is not gonna have the last word. So according to scripture, Hell is real, just as sin is real, and God is going to do something about it, which leads to a second declaration we find in Scripture, and it's this. This is an important one. Hell is the absence of God. I mean, we know Scripture teaches that there's no place in all of creation that's outside of God's presence or his goodness, but hell is the exception. In fact, listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks of it. And these are very sobering words, very sobering. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from what? The presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Because hell is a place that is shut out from the presence of the Lord. God's absence is what makes it hell. And and some of you might be wondering, well, what about all those different images, all those kind of graphic pictures we read about in the Bible? In fact, listen to some of the horrid images Jesus described. Jesus said that in hell there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, eternal punishment, anguish in the flames. And so we ask, isn't hell then filled with all these terrible, torturous things? Well, for for one, really understand the larger point of all this is that we're meant to shudder at the idea of hell. We are meant to tremble and to feel dread. We are meant to recoil from its reality. I mean, not by denying it, but by fleeing from it into the arms of Jesus. But secondly, friends, we also have to remember when we read those things, exactly how we read Scripture in those passages. Because the Bible describes life after death, you might know, in all sorts of symbolic ways, often through metaphors, including when it talks about heaven. I mean, for example, you might know the biblical language. that describes heaven as a place with pearly gates and streets of gold. You've read that, right? And when that's written about, understand, though, those aren't intended to be exact architectural blueprints of the coming kingdom. Rather, it's a way for the writer to depict in symbolic language just the extravagance, the unimaginable grandness of the kingdom of heaven. And similarly, when the Bible talks about hell, it often does so with kind of dramatic symbolic images. And and one of the ways that we know the language is intended to be symbolic is that the different symbols really don't make sense when you put them together in the same place. Like for example, when we read of hell being a lake of fire, but it also says it's in total darkness in the same place. How does that work? Which really implies to us that we're not talking about literal fires or dungeons per se. So really the, the question we need to ask is, Okay, what do these symbols symbolize? I mean, what are they describing for us? Like, take fire, for example. Well, we know this from Scripture, that fire consumes and it destroys. That's what it says in Scripture. So these descriptions point to the disintegration, the destruction of the human soul, as it becomes more and more consumed with its own greed and envy and anger and self-hate. So is hell filled with fire and furnaces? Probably not. But the reality is actually worse. Because hell is a place where we are consumed and destroyed by our sin. And where God's grace and presence never show up. I mean, that's what Jesus meant when he used the phrase of hell as being the outer darkness. He, he was meaning that hell is, there's no hope there of change, of redemption, of restoration. I mean, a lot of symbolic language, yes. And we have to do some work to understand it. But understand this. That doesn't make hell any less real. Because it's defined by, its core characteristic is, It's a place where God is absent. That's what makes it hell. Which again raises a question. Then how can a loving God send a human being to a place like that? And the answer is, he doesn't have to. Why? Well, because of the third declaration we find in Scripture. Because Scripture says this. People are in hell because they choose to be. I mean, think of this. You see, as we kind of live out our daily lives, making decisions, what we don't often think about is that each of us is on a certain trajectory. Each of us is. Each of us is becoming a certain kind of person every day, through every choice, every decision, every action. You are freely becoming a certain kind of person. I mean, either... Someone who more and more wants God's will and character to be glorified and lifted up in your life, or someone who wants more and more glory for yourself. You know, in fact, Jesus' most graphic story or parable about hell teaches us this very thing. It's in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who lived out his life. And while he lived, he ignored a beggar named Lazarus who sat by the gate to his mansion. And after both men die, Jesus describes in the parable the rich man in hell. And listen to what he says. Listen carefully to this. This is Luke 16, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. There's that Greek word again. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and the beggar Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Okay, so here again, there's this symbolic language we have to kind of sort, sort of read through and understand. Notice the rich man's request. Just notice his request. What does he ask for? He doesn't ask to get out. Kind of surprisingly, right? He doesn't say, oh God, I'm ready to repent. I, I've learned my lesson. I understand who you are. I want your kingdom. I, my faith is in you. No, I call out to you. Doesn't say that, right? Rather, what he says is, he asks for Abraham to send Lazarus with some water. And scholars who understand the culture of the day point out that he's still the same arrogant, haughty, self-absorbed guy who just believes that people like Lazarus exist only to serve his needs. And, and so one of the lessons of this parable is that this rich man, he doesn't want to be in heaven. He never says, "Oh, would you let me come to heaven?" what does he want? He simply wants his comfort back. He wants his privilege back. He wants the life that he was choosing to live every single day, that he's still choosing. And that's what makes it hell. So the lesson here is not that hell isn't miserable, but friends, it's miserable by choice. I mean, listen, it's possible that your choices in life can lead you to a place where there's nothing about God that you actually want. Let me just say that again. It's possible that your choices in life can lead you to a place that there's nothing about God that you actually want. There's a prominent biblical scholar named N.T. Wright. He describes it this way. He writes, It is possible for human beings to continue down this road so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death, they become at last, by their own effective choice, beings that once were human but are now not creatures who have ceased to bear the divine image at all. It is a really sobering thing. And and that is what that phrase, weeping and gnashing teeth, is all about. It's not the idea, oh, I wish I was in your kingdom, God. No. It is rather, it's resentment toward everything God's kingdom stands for. I, I stand against you. It's that. Which brings us back to our question. So how could a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? Well, the Apostle Paul says this about the worst case for the human soul, about people who have pushed God out of their lives. And and we read about this in our study of the book of Romans in chapter 1. And this is what Paul writes. This is Romans 1 and verse 21. Paul says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then there's this phrase that Paul keeps repeating to describe God's response to these people's just ongoing rejection of him. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. I'm sure you caught the phrase. that just keeps being repeated. God gave them up. Gave meaning what? Meaning that God was saying through his actions, I mean, if what you really want is existence apart from me, apart from my guidance, apart from my will, I'll let you have it. I mean, an individual can say to God, leave me alone, and God will ultimately say, okay, I will leave you alone. And the ultimate result of that, when a person kind of finally and utterly wants to be left alone by God, that's hell. I mean, it's just the ultimate consequence of just a continual, subtle rejection of God's grace and God's presence. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, all right, thy will be done. I mean, hell, it's separation from God. And people are in hell because they choose to be. But praise God, there's a fourth declaration that we see in Scripture, and it's this. God's desire is to rescue you from hell. I mean, his desire, his goal, his plan, his work, all he's doing is it about saving you, rescuing you from that judgment. And how do we know that? Because of Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, do you have any idea of the price God was willing to pay so that you could spend eternity with him and not apart from him? Do you have any conception of the depth of God's love for you? I think I've shared the story with you before, but it's really been something of a metaphor for me in my life of God's love. And it, it is still so vivid in my mind because it was so scary. Uh, It was when Jillian and I were living in Chicago, our kids were quite young. Our son Taylor was about three years old, had adorable wavy blonde hair. And there were reports on TV and the news in that day about kidnappings of children at Chicago-area shopping malls, and particularly blonde-haired children. And the authorities were guessing that they were being taken to Eastern Europe to be sold on the black market. And every so often, we'd hear another story of a child that was apparently taken. So one day, I was going to Woodfield Mall, which was, at that time, it was the largest mall in the world at that time. And I was taking Taylor with me. And Jillian said firmly to me, do not lose him. And at the mall, we went around different stores, having a great time, uh, came to Sharper Images store. I don't even know if it's still around, but it's it a very cool store, electronics, tech stuff with it. Taylor right beside me, checked on him regularly, was looking at some item, looked down again, and, and he was gone. So I turned around. He wasn't there. I started walking around the store. I mean, he was nowhere in the store. And so I asked some people that were there. They hadn't seen anything. The store clerk had no idea where he was. Went out in the mall and started asking other people. And as I asked him, they didn't know anything. I thought, okay, that we're right here. I should see him just walking around here somewhere. And started. I, you can probably imagine getting a bit scared at that moment. And looked in the next stores, went to the other stores, nobody there, went out in the open areas again. And I can honestly say that in my life to that point, I had never searched for anything as deeply and passionately in my life as I did for my son at that moment. And and as I ran around just trying to find mall security, just and then for a moment that idea came to my mind, somebody's grabbed him. And I was running around frantically. I was. I, I, I can still feel it. I can still picture it so clearly. And and then remember just seeing down the mall, just up a ramp, this little blonde head heading for, I mean, who knows where. And I, I bolted for him, just with a singular focus, as any father would for their child. And, and coming to him, reached him, knelt beside him, just grabbed him, held him, and, and, and said, Do not tell mom about this, okay? (laughs) But here's the thing. I mean, I was going crazy, and Taylor had no clue he was lost. He had no idea why I was sweating so much or so excited to hold him. Because at times... People don't realize their situation. And and so Jesus says to us, do you you know an earthly father's love? Well, multiply that a thousand times 10,000 and you might begin to grasp God's love for you and his desire for you to come to him, to be with him. That's what Jesus says. He keeps trying to communicate that, and so in Luke 15, Jesus said, I want you to understand my father. My father, he's like a shepherd who has 99 sheep who are with him, and all of them are are safe, and so the shepherd should be doing fine, should be okay, but one of his sheep is missing, and so that shepherd cannot stop. He can't rest, and so he goes out. He searches everywhere until he finds that one lost sheep, and then Jesus says, and and my father's like this. The heavenly father, he's like a father who has a son who rejects him and rebels against him and takes half his money and blows it all. And then he stays as far away from his father as possible. And that father wakes up every morning. And his first thought is of his prodigal son. Every day he goes out and looks and hopes, maybe today, maybe today my son will come home. And when his son finally comes home, oh man, you wouldn't believe the celebration, Jesus says. And Jesus says, that's the love of God the Father for you. The Bible says, that is why Jesus went to the cross. I mean, when he was there, he conquered darkness no, all the forces of it. He is Christus Victor. And on the cross, he took your sin, our sin, our pain. He endured the hell of separation from God on the cross. And so our question today, how, how could a loving, grace-filled God allow anyone to go to hell? Well, what if God provided a way for both the righteous demands of his justice and the demands of his love to be met. And and where do we see God's holiness and justice merged exquisitely with his loving grace? At the cross. At the cross. I mean, the holy, righteous, just God of heaven poured out his full wrath on his only begotten son, Because, understand, God is a holy God. He is just. And he is a God of abounding love for you. So as many have noted, the deepest question really is not, how does God allow hell? Rather, the real question is, why does God love us so deeply and move so extravagantly and sacrificially to spare us from hell? And you know, the Apostle Peter echoes what's declared in the rest of Scripture because Peter says this as to why God would do this. This is 2 Peter 3, nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing... That any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Because the door is wide open to anyone. But he'll not force us to turn to him. I mean, you choose your eternal destiny. Again, as C.S. Lewis put it, understand, the gates of hell, they're locked from the inside. So today, I just want to invite you, to respond to the God who treasures you and seeks you. So can we do this? where you bow your heads with me? And before I pray again, I just want to give you a chance to respond to God in this. And maybe as we even reflect on this challenging topic today, maybe your heart is lifted to just, you want to say in a silent prayer to God, oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision. I invite you to do this in the silence. Or perhaps some of you are here today and you want to say yes to God today. And so I encourage you, just to, again in a silent prayer, you can say yes. God, I, I confess I'm fallen and broken. Yes, I, I ask for your forgiveness, Father. Oh, yes, God, I, I want to submit my life to you. You will be king of my life. Yes, God, I ask for your spirit to fill me, to guide me, empower me in this life. Oh, I encourage you to respond to him. And Father, we thank you for your grace to us. And we know, we don't know the half of it, of the wonders of your love and grace and goodness. So I pray, Father, by your spirit, even this week, you would be guiding us and resting in you. And Father, we pray you would use us by your spirit this week in our schools, neighborhoods, workplaces, wherever we are on the road, to express the reality of Jesus to those around us in our words and the way we live, so that you'd be honored, we pray. And this together, today as a people, we say, thank you, Father, And all God's people say, amen, amen.